Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let everyone be subject to the government, governing authorities, for there is no authority except for which God has established. The authority that exists has been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who will bring judgment on them themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. If you do not want to be free from the fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one that is in authority is God's servant for your own good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For the rulers do not hear, uh, bear the sword for no reason. There are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring judgment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities not only because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of consciousness. This is why you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who can give their full time to governing, to give everyone, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I um, need to let you know, and I, I don't want to get any details wrong, so I'm mostly going to read this. Uh, we are involved in what's called Loving BISD, and the adopted campus that we have is A.P. Boydell. Yay, A.P. Boydell. Um, and they were named in 2021 a National Blue Ribbon School. Go, woo! Okay. Uh, this is given to only 325 schools, not across Texas, but across the nation. It is a big deal. And they're having very prestigious award. Um, on November the 8th, there's going to be a day full of celebrations and events, including a parade. And, and we, as the adoptive school, have offered to provide cake, a cake for this occasion. So, um, Belinda, where's Belinda? Please stand up, because they're not going to... Okay. Belinda is our coordinator for Loving BISD, and I was her best contact at AP Boydell. If you would be willing to just give her a little bit of cash to help defray the cost of that cake, we would appreciate it. Sooner you can do that. In fact, just kind of today, please do that. And, and if, if you're touched to do that, uh, because I have a feeling if you get out of here and you haven't given her your... You've conveniently forgotten and don't have to worry about that anymore. So quick question. Just get your mind, imaginations open. Best opening scene for a movie. Can you say it out loud? Okay. You're wrong if you didn't say Top Gun, just so you know. 1986, um, Ridley Scott opens this movie with this scene of clouds and kind of music and getting the, the jets off the aircraft carrier off the line there. And, and far and away, it's the best scene, the opening scene of any movie. What I have noticed about opening scenes is I kind of, kind of thought about, man, because what I wanted to do is I said, okay, that's a very male story. Although, I've been told by young ladies that the volleyball scene is very feminine. I don't know. But that's beside the point. What I, th I thought was, oh, okay, Sarah, uh, forgive me, shoot, all you want, chick flick. They're chick flick with a great opening scene. And what I've decided is that basically 
Chick flicks, this should sound somewhat familiar if you do marriage stuff at all. Chick flicks kind of start slow and kind of have to slowly get you involved in the story and build up the big crescendo. Guy movies, you better hit it fast and get their attention quickly. But in my search, in my search, something women would love. So the best I could do was J.J. Abrams' revision of the Star Trek saga. If you don't know that movie, we're have moms having a baby as all things are going on around it. And I thought, man, that's very feminine. That connects to the female psyche, doesn't it? Ladies, it's the best I could do. But maybe a true contender for the top spot is the opening scene, very male movie, sorry about this, of Gladiator. Do I not have any guys going to say amen to that? Okay, there we go, all right. Or a whoop or something, I don't know, there's a bunch of Aggies here. And in reality, I have to confess that it captures me as well. But I almost have to question myself, what is it that it captures me for? The idea of command, the idea of war, the idea of well-synchronized military units, flames and arrows and bad guys being eliminated and all those kinds of things. The problem is, and there's a quote in the opening scene where one of the generals says to Maximus, Maximus is the Russell Crowe figure, says, says to him, People should know when they're conquered. And Maximum reflects back. And this is where I think we have to kind of turn ourselves a little bit. Would you know that you're conquered? In reality, the rest of the movie flows from that quote. And what you and I need to recognize is that for the majority of people who lived in the Roman world, and so now we step straight into the pages of Paul's letter to the Romans. We have to realize that the Roman army is not this symbol of, oh, I'm so glad they're here to take care of all of us. It was the symbol of Roman peace through the use of the Roman hobnailed boot to trample anyone who did not agree or would not submit to them. And while the population of Rome was far and away Slaves and foreigners and people who were not in the upper classes, the patricians. The Roman army represented the power of Rome to say, if you get out of line and don't do what we tell you to do, they will come and conquer you as well. Let's be very specific. Just five years before Paul wrote this letter, the Jews were told... If you'd like to leave, it'll be okay. We don't really want you around anymore. And so if you could, you know, pack up a few things. And if it's okay. That is never the way Rome does things. The Jews were told, and the numbers were something like 10,000 Jews were exiled from the city. I am told that a couple of decades before that, 2,000 Jews were rounded up because the synagogues were being too popular and were thrown into jail in Sardinia. Not because they broke the law. Not because they were somehow or another bad citizens, but because simply they posed a threat to those who were in rule. Yes, there was Roman peace. But Roman peace was accomplished by stories like the story of Masada that you may have heard before. When the Romans came in and conquered 
Jerusalem and a group of people fled to the Herod's fortress, Masada. The Romans said, fine, we'll take six, eight, ten months to build a ramp so that we can finally get to you because we are going to kill you because you've opposed us. That is the setting. That is the political reality when Paul says, along with his companions, he pens these powerful words. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. It's this word that gets used quite often by Paul. It's a word that he connects to what Christian service and Christian life is going to be about. If you go to Ephesians chapter 4, it will say, submit to one another out of love. We also recognize that marital relationships, wives submit to your husbands, husbands lay down your lives the way Christ laid down his life for others. But doesn't it kind of cross a plane that we're a little bit less comfortable with when he says that same attitude that you should have one another in Christ, you should have towards, quote, the governing authorities. And before we forget and we sort of pull it somehow out of its context, we have to go all the way back to 12.1 and remember that this is part of Paul's teaching to us. Having established the celebration of the gospel in the first 11 chapters, he says, now how are we going to live that? He says, we're going to be living sacrifices is what we're going to do. And to people who live in a democracy and who somehow or another envision that political power only flows from the bottom up, that those guys are in charge only because I put them there, the words submit to the governing authorities sound a whole lot like being a sacrifice rather than being this strong individual that impacts your outcome. Nor should they be separated from these words which immediately preceded it, which we just want to summarize from last week's sermon. As we interact with the world and as we interact with society, I think we have to continue to recognize that we are called to bless and not curse. We're called to be empathetic and sympathetic for not just, by the way, not just the people inside this group, but our neighbors. And if this can be applied to political discourse, do we ever take the time to say, they disagree with me completely, but why is it that they feel that way? Why is it that that is a policy that they support? Do we ever take the time to say, I wonder what their perspective is? Or are we so quick to want to condemn and confront and, and shout our opinion that we never take the moment to say, hmm, I wonder where they come from? And finally, of course, the call. That call that as far as it depends on you to live in peace with all. These are all part of this context. In these instructions, Paul, again, is, if not largely quoting Jesus, he's at least aligning himself with Jesus. So let's go back to Luke chapter 20 and see what Jesus had. I don't know if we ever really reflect on how Jesus' statements can be understood in a political context, but many of them, by the way, when he said, I'm going to rise and I'm going to be king, if there ever was a political statement, that's it. But it's more than politics, isn't it? Much more than politics. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 20, verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be honest. 
Nobody ever does that, do they? Spies that tend to be honest. In order to trap him by what he said, so as to hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. That is to say, we want, to do, want him to do something that we can then make a political accusation of him. We want him to violate the law, or at least violate, by the way, didn't have to just violate the law in Roman societies. You could just be a threat to the peace. And we want to catch him in that. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you are right in what you say and teach, and you sow deference to no one, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Uh, by the way, I just want you to look here at, once again, the way a spy who's lying and pretending to be honest actually proclaims the truth. You'll see this when we get to the cross. They'll say, Hail, King of the Jews, to mock him. And what is he? King of the Jews. So their question, here's the way we're going to catch him. Is it, lawful for, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to the emperor or not? You see, you've heard of people like the zealots before, correct? There were people, in fact, one of Jesus' disciples is called a zealot. These are people who were willing to take up arms. They were guerrilla warriors who were going to kill Roman soldiers and Roman political leaders and citizens in any way, in any setting that they could, to try and assert the independence of Israel away from Rome. This, by the way, is what many people hoped that Jesus would do. That his becoming Messiah would mean he would take up arms and drive the Romans off and make Israel an independent and powerful nation again. But for many people, they didn't want to take the risks of being executed and being the kind of zealot that would sort of carry a weapon and intend to set up plans to kill people, what they wanted to do was their zealotry was going to be limited to somehow or another figuring out a way to not pay the taxes that they owed. I'm sure that wasn't income, right? Maybe I can substitute something. Let's see if we can keep from doing this. And in reality, what they saw themselves doing is being these proud people standing for independence without taking any risk at all. And what it appears to be going on, if Paul says so specifically, pay taxes, and what history tells us is that the taxing system in Rome at that time was heavily punitive, especially if you weren't a Roman citizen. And if especially if, and again, if Jews are in the city, likely Jews are dependent on, on commerce and an economic system that lets them bring things into the city and send things out of the city, import, export. And that was a big place where the Romans loved to tax and make revenues off of those kinds of things. And Paul says, hang on, hang on. That can't be part of what you do. Because at some level, he knows what Jesus says. Let's continue. 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose head and whose title does it bear? And they said, The emperor's. And he said to them, Then give for the emperor the things that are the emperor's. Now it would have been convenient for him to stop there, wouldn't it? It just becomes a nice little moral lesson. This is how you get along. Except it's more subversive than that, isn't it? It calls for not only not being conformed to the world of pushing against things that we aren't supposed to push against, but instead it takes us to a place of transformation and says, and give to God the things that are God's. 
And they were not able in the presence of the people to trap him by what he said. And being amazed by his answers, they became silent. Eugene Peterson will paraphrase, paraphrase Romans 13.1 in this way. Be a good citizen. All governments are under God. Again, you need to see how God perceives this. And we need to align ourselves with that. No matter how great we may see the government of the United States or the government of China or the government of Russia or wherever it may be, make no mistakes, there is a higher authority. Amen? And to the extent that the government of the people ignores or despises or works against the reality that there is a higher authority. They set themselves up as a highest authority. They are not doing what God wants them to do. But that is what governments do all the time. All governments are under God. And insofar as there is peace and order, if there's peace and order in your society, that comes from God. Not, from, not directly from the government. Now, I need to be sure and say, and there are different commentators that actually kind of take this scripture and say, reality, we don't need to pay any attention to this because we come in a different setting. We are not under a military dictatorship. We are citizens in a democracy. And I think we're thankful for that, aren't we? We need to recognize, though, especially when we shift from being in a totalitarian military dictatorship Instead, a democracy, we have to recognize that there are times to stand up in opposition. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that Christians were a minuscule part of the population of Rome and of the empire as a whole. It will be a few centuries before it begins, Christianity will begin to gain societal and political power in this setting. And we can argue quite extensively whether Christianity and the church and the kingdom of God were better served when we were a minority as opposed to the power players in the society. Paul's theological reasoning here looks something like this. And please forgive me, I'm trying in four lines to summarize the entire Old Testament, okay? So forgive me. First of all, at creation... God brought order through his rule to bring his blessing. See these words? God brought order to creation through his rule. And the purpose of that order was to bless. Amen? Then God created humankind to bear his image. And again, now the Jesus statement makes sense. Whose picture is on the coin? Caesar's picture is on the coin. Whose picture is on you? God's pictures on you. To bear his image. And again, if you read Genesis 1, we're invited to partner with him in ruling over creation. To bring his order in a better and more expansive way. And to bring his blessing. To order things according to God's will so that greater blessing can happen to more and more people. I've heard this illustration used. If you have a garden... And you do absolutely nothing to it. Joe, what will happen to a garden that you do nothing to? Will it grow things? It will grow weeds. If we're going to get good from the garden, we're going to have to import some order to it. Right, Joe? And as Joe will tell you, put lots and lots of compost on it. Am I right? Okay. 
And from that, that which would become just weeds and be of no productivity at all becomes something that is good for us. We partner with God in bringing his order and rule for blessing. Just one problem. We chose. When the forbidden fruit was chosen, we chose to rule from our sense of right and wrong, not God's sense of right and wrong. And if you read a few more pages into the Bible, you discover that not only do we want to define right and wrong, we want to set ourselves above God. We want to build a tower that reaches to God so that no one can be higher than we are. A process repeated by governments for millennia. If you want to catch the Bible's highlights, see what Egypt does when it decides that it knows better than God what good is and kills thousands of Jewish babies. Nation of Babylon, nation of Greece, the nation empire of Rome. Finally, in all of this, God still recognizes the need for rule and order in society, even if those who rule and order society are broken, just like the rest of us. Just like the rest of us. Some of you may be saying it sounds a lot like I'm telling you to be conformed to the world. But in reality, that's not what this call is. The world is always pushing against authority and always trying to assert itself as a higher person. Because we're called not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by God. And when we, confine, when we combine verses 1 through 7... With verses 8, 9, and 10, I think we see some of the transformational power of Paul's message to us. Let's read together. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commands are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor. Be sure and say... The Old Testament and Jesus both define neighbor as not somebody who's in the club of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Love does no wrong. When you read this statement in 1310, you need to go all the way back to 12.1. And read all of those words and say, how does this point us toward love does no wrong? Living sacrifices don't do wrong. Transformed people do no wrong. And we can continue down the process. The recognition in Roman society of a highly tiered slaves, foreigners, people who were Roman citizens, people who weren't Roman citizens, rich people, people who were owners people who participated in the governing authorities. Very tiered kind of thing. And in reality, part of what made the church so unique, and even more made church assemblies so unique, was that Paul said and taught and lived out, God wants us in the church to all be the same. But when you walk outside the church, you need to recognize and give honor to where honor is due and respect where respect is due. You've got to figure out 
Things are different in the world. And it's not your job to impose what goes on in your church in the world. It's your church to be at, job to be at peace with the world. And in doing that, to maybe draw them to something even better. This includes the political neighbor, the governors, the leaders, the politicos, and even the civil servants. Here lies the key to civil disobedience and any kind of oppositional political action. If I am standing up for something politically, particularly if I am opposing the current leaders and current set of laws, then it needs to be that I am acting not so that somehow or another life is better for me, but I recognize that there are people who are being unjustly trodden down who somebody else has to stand up for. We're all so quick to say, lower the taxes! Amen? And maybe lowering the taxes we can support as something that's good for everybody. I'm not opposed to that. But if all we're doing is saying there'll be more money in my pocket, then we're not acting in a democracy for God. Here's some ideas about how we can resist conformity to the world in relationship to the society and the governing authorities. No, I stand accused and condemned and convicted. I cannot give you absolutes. They are hard. And so many of them I am still working out in my own heart, therefore I don't feel comfortable putting them before you. They are highly nuanced. But I want to invite you, I would be more than happy to engage in a dialogue with anyone about how we apply these valid principles to civic and social issues. With all that said, there's an acronym on the first one. I'm borrowing from Paul. If it is possible, and as far as it depends on me, say it with me, if it is possible, as far as it depends on me, and it may not be possible, and, and seldom if ever in a large society are you the only ones that determine the, re, the rules of engagement. Please understand that. But as, if it's possible, and as far as it depends to me, to be the best participants in society we can be. Secondly, to watch the language we use when we describe governing authorities. Parents especially hear this word. You either refer to the police officer with respect or you demean the police officer. You either speak of the governing authorities as people who, even if they're misguided, who are trying to do good the way they understand good. More importantly, you never speak in such a way about the governing authorities that your children or other people around you might assume that you don't know that God is greater than all of them. Third, in a political loss. You've lived long enough to know one side wins one time and the other side wins the other time. Goes back and forth. Go all the way back to FDR when we got three of them in a row, right? But that hasn't happened since then not going to happen since then. So at some point, wherever you are politically, you're going to be on the losing end, aren't you? And I'm calling us that if we are those who follow Christ, living sacrifices, we will resist the tendency to malign 
our opponents. Because isn't that just so incredibly easy to do? Even more, I want to challenge you to some steps for all of us to welcome the Spirit's transformation very quickly. I call you to continually remember our dual citizenship. We are citizens of the United States, and of that I am extremely proud. I'm a citizen of Texas, and I'm proud of that too. But in reality, I'm not just a citizen of Texas or just a citizen of the United States. By the way, that's not my priority. I'm a citizen of, I'm a citizen of Texas, so you know. But I have a dual citizenship, and it's not Texas and the United States. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. Amen? We have a dual citizenship, and we must always understand which citizenship is primary. And in case you're confused, I'm not talking about Texas citizenship being bigger than American. I'm talking about my citizenship in heaven, my citizenship in the kingdom is greater than anything by a long shot. In many ways, we have to always ask, who do I owe the greater debt? Secondly, if we're going to welcome transformation, I think we need to evaluate elections. In other words, in a democracy, you're going to vote. And when you choose who to vote for, are you only trying to discern what's good for you? Or are you looking at the issues of what is good for the other? What is good for people who can't defend themselves? What is good for the people who have no voice? That's a hard challenge for me. I'll be real honest. And by the way, that answer has no political affiliation whatsoever. Third, finally, you need to be prayerfully seeking your own prophetic voice. Have you spent much time reading the prophets? The prophets are not happy with the ruling authorities in Israel. And they see that the ruling authorities in Israel have forgotten that right and wrong gets defined by God, not by them. And they have forgotten that God is greater than they are. And the prophets rail against them at the way they treat the poor. At the way that the rich continually abuse the poor. I don't know what your prophetic voice is for a political issue. I ask you to pray about it. And secondly, I don't ask you or invite you then to beat it over the heads of other people, but to speak of it in peace and for the common good. Amen? But I do ask you to prayerfully speak. Where does God call you to say what we in the United States or we in Texas or we in little old Lake Jackson or Brazoria County are doing that isn't in line with what God would have us be about? Don't do that for your own good. Do that for the good of neighbor and other. To follow Jesus is always going to be about taking up your cross. We sang a song today. God's good news always leads us there. I bet you've sung trust and obey maybe a thousand times in your life. My guess is you never sang it before the guy preached on 
how to be a good citizen in the world. We're now going to sing a song about the third line. Is I trust in thee, let me not be afraid. That sounds like a life that's a living sacrifice. That sounds a life taking up a cross. In our relationships in the church, taking up the cross in our relationships with our neighbors, and taking up the cross in how we live in society. If you're with us online, I invite you to become part of the conversation. And anything that you would like to start, 979-217-3300, you are welcome to join us. But the invitation of God is to know where your first citizenship is. Amen? The invitation of God is to know the image that's printed on you. And it's God's. Would you come as we stand and sing? Unto thee, O Lord.